something that's really central, another very central thing to our Christian faith is the fact that Jesus died for my sin and gave me eternal life. Anyone agree? Yeah, yeah a couple of you are like, oh yeah, I think that, that rings a bell. <laughs> Probably something important that was taught in Sunday school. Uh, no, this is the central part of our Christian faith. Without this... You know, the Christian story doesn't really make much sense. It, it, we would be in a completely different space. We would still be under the law, for example. We might be needing to do animal sacrifices, although maybe our morning teas are a little bit like that. <laughs> Too far, some people. I would love to see like a, a roast, like a rotisserie cow one Sunday morning. Oh, that would be beautiful. I think the incense will rise to the heavens. <laughs> Father's Day? A whole cow? Probably not a whole cow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, would, we wouldn't really understand God's love. We wouldn't really understand how much God wants to be in relationship with us. We wouldn't really have a reason to dedicate all of our lives to God. I don't think. You know, we, we, we might not even be followers of God. On this side of the planet, <laughs> the God that we serve might not have any relevance to us. So without Jesus, everything crumbles apart. But in particular, the fact that Jesus died for our sins is central, isn't it? And that is something that uh, we want to come to at this time of the year. We're getting close to Christmas. And um, I want to take you to an important account found in Luke chapter 7. And it's starting in verse 36. I'm just going to run through, summarize it a little bit. Jesus was invited to the house of a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees and Jesus didn't like each other. Or maybe Jesus loved them, but he did not enjoy or appreciate or condone what they were doing, right? And the Pharisees were openly enemies of Jesus. So the fact that this Pharisee was saying, hey, Jesus, come, come, come to my house for dinner, was a bit weird. And when we read other accounts, not in this one, but other accounts, when the Pharisee invited Jesus to their house, it was often to set a trap. They wanted to find out through conversation whether they could, they could prove that Jesus was a heretic, whether Jesus uh, needed to, to, to be killed or whatever. And, and so maybe that's the case here. We don't quite know. But Jesus comes to this guy's house. His name is Simon. And he reclines because that's what they do at dinners. It wasn't like a normal table and chairs. They were reclined. And as Jesus was reclined, this woman who was known to be a sinner in the community comes to Jesus and she breaks a flask of perfume and anoints his feet and then she starts to weep and wet his feet with her tears and then she gets her hair and begins to clean his feet. This is absolutely scandalous, crazy. And when we picture it, we go like, okay, a bit weird. No, no, no. In those times, it was actually scandalous. This woman's perfume that she broke was likely the perfume that she was meant to keep for her husband on the wedding night. All right, so this is not just any, like, oh, yeah, I went and picked up some nice-smelling stuff for Jesus. No, 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 she was saving up for a special day. And then the fact that she undid her hair and would use her, her, uh, her uncovered hair in that culture was also scandalous. You only uncovered your hair for your husband. So in effect, this woman who poured out this perfume that was meant for her wedding night and used her hair to wipe his feet was saying, Jesus, I'm marrying you right now. And she did this in a Pharisee's house. And the Pharisee didn't like Jesus. So she was doing something that was kind of crazy. She was doing something that was 
mind-blowing. And when the Pharisee saw this, he thought in his head, he didn't even say this out loud, verse 39, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And by inference, when they talk about this woman being a sinner, she didn't just lie. She didn't just steal a couple of apples from the store. She was probably an adulteress, maybe a prostitute. And so this was like, man, this woman is tainted. And Jesus, as a prophet, would not want this tainted person to be touching him. If he were a prophet that understood the law as this Pharisee understood, that's what he was saying. Now, he didn't even say this out loud, but, but Jesus knows what he's thinking. Kind of crazy. So this whole story is just like, oh my gosh, what the heck is going on here? This is crazy talk. Jesus then looks at him and tells this parable. Two people borrowed money from a moneylender and they couldn't return it. Um, and, and the moneylender, out of the grace of his heart, um, forgives the debt that both of them had. Now, one of them owed the moneylender more than the other. And so Jesus asked the question, who would love the moneylender more? Which is pretty obvious, right? If you uh, got forgiven a m much bigger debt, you would probably uh, love the person who forgave you more. And so Jesus then turns um, to... Uh, uh, in Luke 7, 44, he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came to your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins has been forgiven as her great love has shown. I want you to pause there and think about this. Therefore, I tell you, her sins has been forgiven as her great love has shown. Her actions, her scandalous actions, proves that she was forgiven much. Proves. Jesus says, it proved that her sins were forgiven. I want you to think about this. Do I love God and I ex express it in a way that proves that He has forgiven me? I think that is a thought that we need to think about. Because I think that when I thought I was forgiven, after that I was like, cool, all good and well, eternity with you, Jesus, now let me live my life. But this passage tells us that this this, that, that her sins were forgiven as her great love, her expression of worship has shown. And then he goes on to say, but whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Beautiful story, right? We love this story. We talk about it when it comes to worship. We talk about it uh, um, uh, in Jesus' great mercy, his great love, and all that kind of stuff. But I have a problem with this song. Uh, this song. <laughs> I don't know where my mind was. I have a problem with this story. Because it made me think for a long time, how do I love Jesus more? You know, this woman was an adulterer, prostitute, something like that, something crazy, right? She's, she's done the stuff that any good Christian person would know shouldn't be done. I'm not like her. I've not done that much stuff. I've not done things that 
you know, the world would persecute me for. I've not murdered, I've not stole, I've not told that many lies. You know, I've devoted my life to helping people. I'm not that bad a person. And so if I don't have much to be forgiven for, will I ever love Jesus more? Anyone ever think like that? And you know, I sometimes think, having grown up in a Christian family, maybe there's a handicap when it comes to Christianity. Because I had good principles all my life. I was told the, the, the straight and narrow way and, and, and I nearly said I was beaten to stay on it. I wasn't beaten <laughs> to stay on it. it just, I don't know why that thought came to my head. But, you know, I was told and kept on the straight and narrow. But does that mean that I will never love Jesus as much as someone who has sinned more? And, you know, as a young man, I used to think, does that mean that I should sin more? That might help my love for Jesus. One day down the track, oh, remember that season where you just went full rebellion and now you love Jesus more because of it. Thank you, Jesus, for letting me rebel so that I could love you more. Is that what this is all about? You see, I think that we have a problem in understanding sin. And when we think that sin is categorized in that kind of a way, we lose sight of our love for Jesus because we lose sight of how much he has forgiven us. And so my intention over the next few weeks, you might have seen the, 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 the series slide, the problem of sin. We're going to talk about sin. We're going to describe sin. We're going to get to that place so that we can understand that when Jesus died, he didn't just die for the murderers and, 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 and the sexually immoral. He didn't die just for those people. He died for all of us because all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so we need to dive back into understanding what it means for us to be sinners. And when we understand it, I hope that what you will then go is like, oh my gosh, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I love you. And I want to love you more because I just had this realization of what you've done for me. So when we talk about sin, what comes to mind? Do you really understand what sin is, or is this just a word that we throw around in Christianity? You know, for me, like I mentioned, I thought about all those big, dastardly deeds that I've never committed. And, you know, the news nowadays, you read the news, and there's all these things about how evil people are. And sometimes I go, thank God I'm not like that. You know, there was a parable about that. Jesus told about a Pharisee that went to the temple and he wanted to pray. And then he saw a tax collector and he goes to, Jesus, uh, he goes to God and he prays like, Thank God I'm not like you. Thank you that I have kept my ways pure. And then there's the tax collector that goes in and goes, you know, Forgive me, Jesus. And then Jesus' whole point in that parable was to say, Who really reconciled with God? Who really encountered God? Not the person that went, Oh, look, I'm fine. But yet I think I do that all the time. Yet I wonder if I truly am proud about how good I've been in front of God. In my worship, I go like, yeah, you know, I'm okay. So what is sin? And maybe you heard the definition of sin as missing the mark. Anyone heard the definition before? Sin is missing the mark. Well, that's true, but it's far too simple. All right, so let's dive into it. What then is sin? The word for sin in Hebrew is the word kata. It's K-H-A-T-A, if you want to have a 
English transliteration of that, Qatar. And the word Qatar wasn't just used uh, for sin. It was actually used in a variety of places. And one of the ones that are really interesting is in Judges chapter 20, verse 16. It says, Among all these soldiers, there were 700 select troops who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at the hair and not Qatar. And not miss. Same word, sin. You could literally say that each of whom could sling a stone at the hair and not sin. Literally. You can't say that. So literally, sin is not uh, is missing the mark. But the problem that we need to think about is what is this mark? You know, I heard this story a while ago. It's probably a fictional story, but this guy visits a farmstay and um, goes to a farmstay, has a bit of fun, and then he finds out that there's this archery station. He goes to the archery station, which ends up being this big... Uh, side of a barn, and he sees this young man uh, uh, with a bow and obviously practicing his archery. And then he looks at the barn and he sees that each one of the arrows that has been fired is in the center of the bullseye. This kid is amazing, this guy thinks. And so he goes up to this kid and goes, what's, what's your secret? You hit the center of the bullseye every single time every single time. And the kid goes, it's easy. And he says, oh, let me show you. So he gets another arrow, he draws it in the bow, fires it off, it hits nothing. Empty space on the barn. And then he picks up a couple of paint tins and then he draws the target with the arrow at the center of the bullseye. Maybe it looks really good when someone comes by your life and sees your arrows hitting the bullseye every single time. But did that kid actually hit the mark or did he move the mark a little bit in order that his life would seem like it's centered on where it's supposed to go? So when we talk about sin, we need to understand what is the mark that we're trying to hit, right? If we want to truly live lives where we understand uh, uh, what is sinful and, and, and what is holy, you know, if we want to have that distinction, then we need to actually understand what the mark is. And to be able to do that, we need to go back to Genesis to be able to understand what was taking place when sin entered the world. And so we know that God created the heavens and the earth, and then He creates this beautiful garden called Eden, where it's just this uh, trees that produce fruit of every kind. It is lush, it is wonderful. And then God creates Adam and Eve and he places them in the garden. And then he tells them that you are to steward all of creation. And one more thing, you are not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I think most of us are familiar with that story. And so that's what uh, Adam and Eve are told. And then what we find then is Genesis chapter 3 happens. And in verse 1, we have this talking snake. And the serpent comes to Eve and says, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree of this garden? The woman basically says yes, to which the serpent says, You will not certainly die, as Genesis 3, 4 to 5. The, um, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so the woman looks at the fruit, sees that it's good, and she eats. And then she hands it to Adam, and he also eats. 
And then Genesis 3 verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, so they soaked fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Next minute, Jesus, uh, Jesus uh, God comes to the garden, and he goes, Adam and Eve, where are you? And so we have the first occurrence of hide and seek <laughs> in humanity, except that they were playing with God, kind of a stupid game to play with God. God, I've got to hide from you. Ha, ha, ha. It's like, you are all-seeing and all-knowing. <laughs> but they hide from God. And God, the moment he sets eyes on them and sees the fig leaves, he knows that they've eaten from the fruit. And then there's this whole judgment sequence, right? So what is happening here? This is an extremely significant account. Extremely significant. In Romans 5 verse 12, this is how Paul describes this moment. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all have sinned. Now, what was the sin? You know, in my mind, and in my understanding, at the very least subconsciously, I thought that the sin was disobedience, right? God told Adam and Eve, don't eat of this fruit, and then Adam and Eve eat of the fruit. They disobey, and therefore sin has entered the world. Is that really what's going on? Is that simple disobedience, if you will, really all that sin is? Because, I mean, if that really is the worst sin in the world, this is how sin entered the world and death to all. Remember that. If that is it, my Sam is a terrible sinner. I have told him not to eat rocks. What does he eat? Rocks. Sam, don't eat the sand. <laughs> Sam, don't eat that snow. <laughs> Sin has entered. Death to all. Sam disobeyed his father. Is that it? Is that really it? Is Adam and Eve's disobedience all that there is to this whole idea of sin. There must be something more, right? And this is where we need to understand that the book of Genesis isn't written as a historical account. It isn't written as a scientific account. It isn't written for any other purpose than to describe who God is, who we are, and how we are interacting. In fact, most of the Bible was written from this perspective to help us understand who God is, the human condition, and how we are relating to one another, in particular what God is doing to relate to us. All right? And so when Genesis was written, was it written with someone who was in the garden kind of observing all the facts and all that was going on? Was there really a talking snake? Was there really a tree that had this fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? Maybe. We don't know. But what I do know, and what we can all know, is that Genesis was written to help us understand key facets of who God is, who we are, and the relationship between us and God. And so what I can know for sure is that this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, at the very least, is a symbol of something very, very, very deep that God would say, don't eat from this. It wasn't just a test to see whether they would obey or not. He was talking about some facet of our humanness that we now have that is not meant for us. But when you think about it, why does God not want me to have the knowledge of good and evil? 
is a bit weird. I think it would be kind of good to know what good and evil is, right? We all want our kids to have and develop their own consciences. We want them to be able to decide what is good and evil for themselves, right? Make sense? I don't want my kid to be completely tested to me for the rest of my life, Sam, good, evil, good, evil, good, evil. No, no, I want him to develop his sense of what good and evil is. And good parenting is probably where kids grow up having a moral compass. And that is a very good thing. So what is going on here? The more I look into it, the more I study this, this is what is taking place. Before Adam and Eve ate the fruit, the knowledge of good and evil came from God alone. God decides what is good and what is evil. But when the serpent tempted Eve, he, he said to her, when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, able to decide what is good and evil. Your eyes will be open and now you get to define good and evil apart from God. When God was saying, don't eat of that fruit, he was saying, you were never created to define good and evil for yourself. And so when Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, what did they say? Their eyes were open, and what did they see? They saw that they were naked, and so they covered themselves. They started to see what God had called good, they now call evil. Do you see that? Now, I'm not advocating that we become a nudist colony, all right, people? Like I said, this is all about the symbolism, at the very least, of what God is trying to show us about what a human condition is. What covering always means in the Bible is shame. Is this sense that I am not good enough. And so when Adam and Eve had their eyes open, they suddenly decided... I'm looking at myself, and I'm not so sure whether I'm all good, and so I'm going to cover up. And so what sin does, this desire to define good and evil for ourselves, what does it do? Number one is that it breaks up relationship between people. It destroys all relationship. Think about this. If I know where your morality is, if I know exactly what, how you would define good and evil because I have a reference point, I would be able to trust you. But the moment every single person defines good and evil for themselves, which our world is moving more and more into in postmodernism, your truth is your truth, your morality is your morality. The moment everyone starts to decide what is good and evil for themselves is the moment that I can no longer trust anyone. Because when I think that this is a good thing and you think it's an evil thing, how are we supposed to relate? And so when we take on the desire to define good and evil for ourselves, we will find relationships breaking apart. That is what happened in the garden. The second thing that happened is that it breaks our relationship with God. Adam and Eve immediately, when they heard God was coming, what did they do? They hid. The explanation to God, go read Genesis chapter 3. I heard you coming and so I hid. 
That's not a very good explanation. What they were saying is, I'm scared to see you. I'm ashamed to see you. Because I look at myself and I no longer think I can be in relationship with you. Is this what the serpent meant when he said that you will be like God? We were not created. We were not created to define good and evil for ourselves. And herein lies an understanding of sin that I never considered till a few years ago. That sin isn't so much about the behaviors, but it's about our desire to define good and evil for ourselves. The whole Bible is about story after story after story of people defining good and evil for themselves, by themselves. You read the very next story that comes in Genesis chapter 4, which is the first mention of sin, by the way. First mention of sin in the Bible. What happens? Cain kills Abel because he thought that he deserved more of God's attention. We keep reading and we read stories of Noah and, and, and Noah and the ark and, and how every person on the earth was evil and filled with the desire, the selfish desire to find good and evil for themselves. Happens time and time and time again. And so when we are having to understand sin is understanding that I am defining good and evil for myself. Tim Keller, who is a great theologian, he writes this, I define sin as building your identity, your self-worth and happiness on anything other than God. That is deep. I define sin as building your identity, my identity, my self-worth, how I understand who I am, my values, what I bring to this world, my personality. I'm defining all of those things on anything other than God. And then he goes on to say, sin isn't about doing bad things. It, it, sorry, sin isn't only doing bad things. It's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. When we build our life, sorry, whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. Now, most of you know Beck. Most of you would say that she is a good thing. But if she is my only good thing that I'm defining my identity from, how many of you know that's only going to lead to destruction, right? Money, good thing or bad thing? Good thing, useful, right? But when you build your identity and your life on money, bad thing. Relationships, good thing or bad thing? good thing. But if you base your identity on what other people are thinking and saying and doing, bad thing, right? Personality and personal health, self-care, good thing or bad thing? Good thing. 
But when it becomes the only thing in my life, that thing, because we were meant to know good and evil based on God and not anything on this plane of existence. And so we need to understand that sin is not just what I do, but my drives, my attitudes, my thoughts from the inside. That's why Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, you have heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Verse 27, he goes on and he says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Why does Jesus teach those things? Because the people were so used to trying to make sure that what is happening out here is good, but they had no concept that what is going on on the inside, the drives and the attitudes are actually where sin resides. We have to understand that every time I try to define what is good and evil for me, I am sinning. I'm sinning. And so, I just want to bring one more verse because I thought it was really interesting. There was this guy, right, who came to Jesus. He's called a rich young ruler. You can read about this. And he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? This is Jesus' first response to him. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. I've always struggled with that. What are you saying, Jesus? No one is good by God alone. Jesus, you are God. So in a roundabout way, you are saying, I am the good teacher, right? What was he trying to do? Well, this guy said, what must I do? I've seen your actions. I've seen your deeds. And you look good. And so I'm going to model my life on what you are doing. So good teacher, what must I do in order to inherit eternal life? Because you look good. I want to be good. And Jesus is saying, you're looking the wrong way, mate. You are defining your goodness based on this external but changeable field when you should only go to God to understand what is good. I don't want to offend anyone, but I want to teach everyone. And so when we define what is good and evil for us, it's sin. When we say that the Bible is too difficult for me to understand and therefore I'm going to put it aside, and I'm defining the difficulty of reading the Bible as evil for me, it's sin. When I define the meeting together as the church as maybe less important than something else. I'm not saying this is a black and white thing, but when we start to define it based on what is good for me or uncomfortable or difficult for me, and I make my decisions out of that personal definition, it's sin. When I say that my boss is requiring me to work Sundays and therefore I can't be at church ever, 
and I'm going to listen to my boss more than what maybe God is saying. I'm not saying that Sunday is the only day you can meet in a church. There are plenty of other churches that meet other days. That's the beauty of where we live right now. I would love you to be part of Lyft, especially you're listening to this. But I'm also understanding that if you really can't prioritize God and the Word of God over your boss, that's sin. When this last, I mentioned, I was just at a retreat with the state executive, and I caught myself thinking this. How do I say this so that I sound smart? I really did. I caught myself thinking that as I was preparing to share something, I thought, hmm, how do I say it so that all of these people would think that I'm smart? That's sin. I, in that moment, was driven by sin. I wanted these people to like me and to think that I'm smart. More than sharing what wisdom and experience and understanding I have garnered from God. More than the good of the movement, I was worried about how people think about me. And I sinned in that moment. When I do relationship in a way that's like, oh, I know that that person's actually doing something wrong and hurtful, but you know what? I'm going to be nice and withhold that. It could be sin. Let's not define sin as sexual immorality, as murder, as violence. Let's define sin as, is God the center of my life? But then the more I think about this concept, the more I feel a weight on me. Because I know that my heart is so driven to control so driven to make sense of the world the way that will make me feel happy, that is filled with secret rebellions I don't even know about. It's filled with desires and drives that might look good on the outside, but it's sinful. And when I think about it, I go, oh man, I... I can't do this. I actually can't live in a way that is sinless. When we broaden, or when we specifically say sin is about our behaviors, I'm pretty good. But the more I look inside of me and I see those drives, the more I'm like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not good. And Paul writes for us in Romans chapter 7, verse 15 to 25. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. What Paul is talking about here is that he has had a revelation of God and he wants to live completely and fully for God. But there is this tension and this wrestle on the inside. 
verse 16, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. What does the law mean? He's talking about specifically the Mosaic law. He's talking about the list of behaviors that are, that are meant to help us to understand what is going on on the inside. He's saying that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. What is he talking about? Does he say that we are split personalities on the inside? No, he's saying that we have come alive in Christ and we have understood that there is a life that goes beyond this plane of existence and that he's calling us to this kingdom living. But however, this sin keeps coming back and trying to redefine, redefine what God is saying to fit me. And that's, he's describing this tension that is taking place on the inside. In verse 19, for I do not do what I want to do is, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, is no longer I who do it, but it's the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's laws, His ways, but I see another law at work in me, the sinful law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within me. He's saying, I'm struggling with this. The great apostle Paul was saying, I still want to define good and evil for myself, and I know that God is the ultimate authority, but I can't help but be caught up in this. And then he makes this statement, verse 24, which I think we all need to be able to get to. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see the tension that exists in Paul? And if Paul had this, Awareness to kind of understand Paul who planted churches across a huge amount of space. We would not be here today without the efforts of Paul. Paul who was shipwrecked many times, who was whipped uh, by authorities many times, who was jailed many times, who was within a whisker of death many times. And he still says, I see that there is still inside of me these desires that are leading me towards sin. How much more do each and every one of us need to look on the inside of us and say, wretched person. Because when we don't do that, sin has already won. When we do that, we've already defined good and evil with what fits my life. We have drawn the bow, shot the arrow, and then painted the target around it. And when we do that, our love for Jesus diminishes. Our need for Jesus diminishes. Our submission to Jesus diminishes. But the more I dive in and I go, I see. 
I don't know if I would have recognized that thought about wanting others to see me as smart if I didn't do the study. Maybe Holy Spirit would still be there. But this awareness is scary, guys. But at the same time, the grace and the love of God is still right there. That's why it's called grace. Because I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. I, I, I didn't become good enough for God's grace. It's the unmerited favor of God that He has displayed for me. So even while I was a sinner, while I am still a sinner, while I continue to have aspects and desires and drives in my heart that are sinful, it's God's grace that sustains me and is there for me. Can we get the band up this morning? Can we stop thinking we are that smart? Can we stop thinking that our morality somehow is that great? And can we start getting into the Word of God, into the presence of God, and start saying, God, you reveal. You reveal. I still know that there are desires that are wretched within me. I don't even recognize them most of the time. But God, you reveal it because you are doing a deeper, greater work in me. And I don't want to let go of the life that you have got. I want to let go of the life that I have got in order to take a hold of the life that you want to give to me. And when the moment comes where we are able to continually, continually, continually keep making those shifts, I think something amazing begins to happen where God's life and light starts to break through in the darkness of our soul, where healing and wholeness comes in, washing over all of those walls and barriers that we have created between us and people and us and God. And something begins to happen. So if I can get everyone just to close your eyes for a moment. God's gift of salvation isn't based on how good I am or what I've accomplished or what I do. God's gift of salvation is based on His great love for us. And maybe you're in this place and you've never really dedicated yourself to God or maybe you're in this place and you discovered, man, you know what? I don't know if I've truly dedicated myself to God for a while. I've walked away from that. If that is you, please say this prayer with me. Dear Jesus, I invite you into my life. I know I'm a sinner. I've made my own mark and disregarded yours. But I see that I need you. Come wash over me, forgive me, make me whole. Amen. The host team are going to come and they're going to distribute communion this morning. I thought this was an appropriate way for us to end our gathering this morning. Because all this talk about sin should, should, Help us to understand that God is greater. God's love 
is more potent. God's love washes over. It's not my behaviors that drive God away from me. It is my decision to stay away from God that does that. And so when we have communion this morning, it's about us saying, God, I want to be close to you. When Jesus had the last supper with his disciples, he took the bread, he broke it, he said, this is my body broken for you. So take and eat. Let's do that this morning. And then he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. A covenant that is not based on your behaviors. It's based on my love. It's based on me coming close. So this morning, let's draw near. Let's take off this cup. Let's say, I renew this covenant. I want to be close to you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Now the band's going to lead us in some worship. I'm going to close the gathering here. So why don't we just stand? I'm going to say a prayer. But if you're in this place and suddenly you're, you're having this realization, hang on. God is, God is wanting to do more in me than I have allowed Him to. Now, I've been defining good and evil for myself, and I need to hear from Him. By the way, upper room, great time once again to realign what God is saying. If you want to keep worshiping, the band will keep leading. I'm going to pray. I'm going to close the gathering here. Dear Jesus, I thank you that your grace is sufficient for me. I thank you that your power is made perfect in my weakness. And so God, as I recognize and I understand how poor and wretched I am, I thank you that all the more I see your grace and its beauty and its worth to me, God. And I pray that all of us will lean in We'll lean in more. We will love you more as we understand the depths of your forgiveness, not just for the past, but also currently and into the future, that your forgiveness continues to be poured out as grace for us. And God, I pray that we will be like that woman who no matter what the circumstance looks like, no matter what the cost, will say, I give myself to you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. I pray this in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Live Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.